Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody, my name is John Bleasdell. I'm a writer and critic on film. Today I'm going to be talking to Glenn Kenny. He's a writer whose work has appeared in many publications, including the New York Times and RogerEbert.com. He has written a book about Robert De Niro and edited a collection of essays on Star Wars. He has also just recently published Made Men, the story of Goodfellas. It's available from all good bookstores, so make sure you pick up a copy if you haven't already. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, please don't hesitate to like, subscribe, share the word generally. And you can follow me on Twitter at drjonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. D -R -J -O -N -T -Y. But before you do any of that, please listen to and enjoy the conversation. was invited in April to go to the Paris cinema to introduce Goodfellas and uh, sign some copies of my book. And that was exciting. That was a great show. My friend David Schwartz, who's now the, the programmer there for that movie theater that was rescued from non-existence by Netflix and mostly shows Netflix movies, but they were showing Ramin Barani's White Tiger. And uh, he had said one of the biggest influences on that film was Goodfellas. So he asked that they screen Goodfellas on the same day that they screened White Tiger along with um, Pushcart Man and uh, Chop Shop. So we screened at noon that day. I introduced the film and signed some books and saw some people, including the filmmaker and uh, one-time Scorsese video archivist Gina Tellaroli 
Kelly and uh, a student of mine. Uh, and it was very nicely spaced out. And then, uh, you know, it's thrilling to see the movie. I, I'd seen it so many times while researching my book, Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas, but I haven't hadn't seen it on a proper cinema screen in quite some time. And I found myself unexpectedly moved by a lot of what I saw. And then seeing some friends and acquaintances was terrific. Signing some books was great. So that was my first time back in a movie theater. My first time paying to see a picture was in Burbank. And on a Saturday, my wife had been working in Los Angeles and then she moved up to Seattle for location stuff. So I had a day at Liberty and I went to the AMC 16 in Burbank. Pristine cinema experience and i saw godzilla versus kong which was really dumb but it was pretty much as advertised it was godzilla versus kong <laughs> did they fight they did fight and there you know the director says well i my vision for godzilla versus kong is not going to be some you know indefinite thing there definitely has to be a winner there's a winner sort of and then i mean they both walk off into the sunset more or less together. But they, they do that thing, remember when Sinead O'Connor tore up the picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live and she said, fight the real enemy. They figure out that the real enemy is something. So they fight that. And then they're like, well, cool, bro. All right. And then they do their respective things. It was dumb. But it was nice to be in the cinema again. And then I saw a press screening last week at the Film Forum. I haven't been to Film Forum in 14 months, at least. But good to be back. So a press screening of La Piscine, the Jacques Deray film that, uh, from 1969 that's been very nicely restored and is a very interesting picture that I'm reviewing in the New York Times. It'll be um, appearing on uh, Thursday the 13th or Friday the 14th. Interestingly, the today, the 11th, when we're recording this conversation is indeed May the 11th, and that's the day in the film Goodfellas in which Henry... Uh, finally gets arrested at the end of a paranoid day of snorting cocaine and making an elaborate meal. Well, that's why that's why I calendared it. I, I did it on purpose, oh, you see. There you go. I thought it was something of a coincidence. I'd like to talk a little bit about your about how you got into writing about movies and then how you went from being critic, well, which you still are, obviously, but how you decided to take the step and write books as well. I was talking about this with my class the other day. I teach language of film at NYU. You know, I was, as a kid, I, I, I wasn't really well socialized. Let's just put it that way. There's certain respects in which I'm probably still not entirely well socialized. I mean, I'm 60 years old, 61 years old, and I still wear famous monsters t-shirts. So there's something wrong. So I went to the movies a lot. You know, movies were a form of uh, escape. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't interested in seeing myself in films. Of course, you know, as a white guy, I could always take that privilege such as it is if I wanted to, but I wasn't, that wasn't my main interest in films. My main interest in films was just sort of getting out of the world that I was in, which led me to great enthusiasm for horror films. I was interested, although I didn't know it at the time because I was too young to know it, but I was interested in the, the what the surrealist called the derangement of the senses that's what i wanted out of movies so i was very attuned to horror films i remember very vividly being 10 years old and seeing uh, night of the living dead that was kind of a formative experience and i i started reading film criticism relatively early on and i had two books that were very important to me uh one was p.e salas gomez's uh, biography of uh, john vigo which i bought when i was about 12 years old from uh, the bookstore at the museum of modern art uh, uh, where my aunt would, would take me, my, my Brooklyn aunt would take me to MoMA and places like that in the uh, 
in the hope of improving my uh, sensibility, my curious sensibility. And I also stole from my good friend, Alan Siegel. Alan Siegel had a copy of the book, Carlos Clarence's book, An Illustrated History of uh, Horror and Sci-Fi Movies, which he borrowed, which I borrowed from him and never gave back, which I feel bad about. But then a couple of years later, I I gave a deposition when um, him and his parents tried to sue a bus that sideswiped him while we were both bicycling around Dumont, New Jersey. So I feel it was a fair enough exchange. I don't know. I've never asked him about it. I don't know what happened to him. I hope he's okay. Eventually, I bought my own copy of the book. I, I have I have a, a revised edition still in my library. So those were two big books for me. And uh, I guess they gave me the intimation about how films could be written about. And then later in my teens, I read Saris's book, The American Cinema, which is, you know, was an important book, still is an important book. I mean, it's more discussed these days relative to its shortcomings than to its strengths. But, uh, you know, I, I still consider it of, of, of value. And that was the idea that, you know, seemed like, I mean, you know, when you're a teenager, you don't really formulate these things in terms of a life plan, but it looked fun. But I was mainly, I was more interested in music and I, I read a lot more music criticism. Did you start writing, writing music criticism? Oh, yeah, 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 very, very much so. As I worked at my college paper in a desultory fashion, and I wrote film reviews, but I mostly wrote music reviews. I was very arrogant. I made a lot of mistakes, some of them very embarrassing. Only I am aware of them because most of the my college newspaper's print run has been long pulped, which I, I find very happy news. I could tell you some tales, but they would still be embarrassing. But that's a great place to learn. It's a lot, a lot of writers today don't have that outlet for learning, you know, how to do things properly and kind of making your embarrassing mistakes sort of outside of the realm of public scrutiny. Uh, so now they make them in the realm of public scrutiny, which is, you know, an interesting career path. Nothing ever nothing ever goes away. No, fortunately, though, my college papers material has well and truly gone away. Uh, I've, been, I've been looking recently at my reviews for Premiere because there's, a, there's someone I'm working with who's been uh, scanning the old pages from the magazine and digitizing my old Premiere reviews for a project that may see public light of day at some point soon. And uh, even those, I find, I'd say there's about 60% of them that I'm completely mortified by. And 40, 35, I mean, you know, this is the condition of being a writer, I think, is that you're you're always looking at your own work and 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 finding terror and despair. But I wrote mostly about music and I started out professionally writing about music. I, I had a very fortunate experience of um, submitting a piece to a magazine on spec and instead of having it rejected, which I was told would happen and that I was told it would happen over and over again before I'd ever had a piece of accepted. The first piece I submitted to a magazine was accepted by that magazine, partially because I'd actually crafted it according to what I saw were its departments that were open to new writing, which a lot of, when I finally got a job as an editor in a magazine, I, I found a lot of freelance writers or would-be freelance writers just didn't do that at all. They just submitted stuff that had nothing to do with the magazine's subject matter or any of its departments, which I thought, well, this is why so many of them get rejected so often. You know, I wrote a piece that the editor of this particular magazine could simply slot in the front of the book department without much, you know, fuss. And that I learned when I became an editor is, is, is a great thing to get as an editor. So I was smart enough to intuit that. And I, my writing was okay. And then, you know, and then that led me to The Village Voice where I pitched Robert Criscow, who was the music editor at the time. And he didn't take my pitch right away, but we had a very spirited exchange, which led to him finally accepting the pitch. And I started writing for him and he was great. 
And he was a really important uh, person in my professional life because he was the first real editor I ever had and that he would go over the piece with me line by line and tell me what was working and what wasn't and challenge the assertions I'd made. You know, a lot of the lessons he gave me, I didn't really fully assimilate until much later on. But, you know, that was a really valuable circumstance for a young writer. And it's something, again, that doesn't happen with uh, for, for many young writers today. So what happened was I, I worked as a music critic and it didn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of money in it. You know, I still had to work other jobs and so on and so forth. So I applied for a job at a magazine called Video Review in 1986. And it was because of my work at the Village Voice that I actually got the job, I later learned, which was, you know, good to know. And I, I got, the job did not involved writing music reviews. It was a the magazine was about video hardware and software. It reviewed laser discs and VHS cassettes, but it was mainly known for its reviews of hardware, VCRs, televisions, camcorders. And my job, my first, the most important part of my job was to edit the test reports. You know, all of this hardware was sent to a lab in Connecticut where it was tested by this crew of guys who wore white lab coats and, you know, measured things like signal to noise ratio and luminous, you know, foot candles of, 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 of light that came from a television. I learned, I, I've forgotten more about CRT television technology than most people ever learn. And now, of course, CRT television technology is all but completely obsolete and irrelevant. So I have no idea. I could actually tell you something about a plasma television's technological makeup or a LED television's technological makeup, but I couldn't tell you all that much that's important, except that, you know, television and televisions are now more like the engines of cars than they've ever been. That is to say, both a car engine and a, a television are essentially um, giant computers with different uh, ends and purposes. But I also, while I was at Video Review, I got a chance to start writing about um, films on video. I was an early adopter of, you know, Criterion collection when they were doing laser discs. And I would review things like the taxi driver laser disc. But in that process of evaluating the hardware or, or the, the characteristics of the disc, I could write about the film. Come full circle because I'm reviewing theatrical film releases off of Blu-ray discs. So writing about that for um, video <laughs> review did get me more into film. I did some pieces, you know, exploring that had kind of film music crossovers, like when David Lynch did the Industrial Symphony at Brooklyn Academy of Music, did a feature piece about that where I interviewed Lynch and Julie Cruz and Angela Badalamente. A few years later, I guess in 1996, one of my colleagues from Video Review was put in charge of Premiere Magazine, and he hired me to come over there. And at first I was actually just doing odds and ends, including a tech supplement where I, you know, explored the new format of DVD and that sort of thing. It'll, ne it'll, ne it'll never go anywhere, no, that DVD. No, no. It'll, never, it'll never take on. Well, actually, I was, what, what did we write about? We wrote out the difficulties of video compression and how um, it wasn't quite there yet. When you had early DVDs, you know, the basis of, of the DVD format was something called MPEG-4, which I saw demonstrated in Japan in the uh, late 80s. And it didn't, it, it looked terrible. It, it looked like early, you know, early TiVo. We used to joke about how uh, the recordings on TiVo were basically reduced the uh, content to sock puppet theater. And by the time DVD came out in the mid nineties, they had certainly refined it to a large extent, but because the the information, the visual information had to be very severely compressed, you would see a lot of interesting anomalies. And those were especially prominent when you had direct lighting sources within the frame. So one of the earliest DVDs was of 
Friedkin's The Exorcist. And when you looked at, say, the subway scene, and there's the oncoming train, the headlights of the uh, of the actual subway look very weird. So you know, you would you would you would look at these discs with an eye to what worked and what didn't, and where they where you know, any time there was an explosion or a fire and it looked kind of simulated. You knew that the video compression was not doing its job. Then I was uh, asked to edit David Foster Wallace's piece about, about David Lynch. And that kind of got me hired on full time. And then a couple of years later, it was decided that I would be the film reviewer. It was a challenge because Premiere was a monthly magazine and we had a rather strict lead time. You know, you had, a, you had to finish the book. You had to have it ready for the printer like maybe six weeks before it would actually hit news stands or be sent to subscribers so the whole idea of, of film reviews was was kind of fraught because of lead time you know you couldn't we didn't we didn't know if we'd get studio cooperation if they'd show us films that that far ahead of time but they wanted the coverage they premiere was a actually a well thought of magazine we had a kind of if we build it they will come sort of approach to the idea of, of doing anywhere from three to nine reviews a month and we also didn't want to ghettoize it and just do indie films which are generally ready for viewing well before the blockbuster pictures were but i think we had a pretty good run you know people were very enthusiastic about getting reviewed in premiere and i was a very i was extremely feisty voice at the magazine and I was an incredibly obnoxious person to work with. But uh, that's neither, you know, that's for a different kind of podcast. <laughs> and the way and the, getting into books was, if you're a writer, you always have ambitions to write books. Yeah. You know, my dad was, when I, when I did my first book, I edited a book called A Galaxy Not So Far Away, Writers and Artists on 25 Years of Star Wars, which came out in 2002. The only Star Wars book to not make money. So it has that exciting distinction. It was a collection of essays by people such as Jonathan Lethem, Tom Carson, Elvis Mitchell, Lydia Millett. How, how, could, it, how could it not make money? I'll, I'll, how, how is that possible? That. Harry Allen, a lot of great people. Todd Hansen, The Onion Writer, Neil Pollock, Joe Queenan, Erica Krauss, The Novelist, Tom Bissell, a great writer who was really the co-editor of the book. These were essays considering Star Wars from the perspective of 25 years after its initial release. And this was well before, I think, Star Wars fandom became truly toxic which I think it absolutely is now. And it was it was issued by Henry Holt, uh, an imprint of Henry Holt called Owl Books. And I think one reason it didn't do well was because Holt at the time was very skittish about promoting the book. They were afraid that Lucasfilm would raise some objection to it. Although there's only two essays out of almost, I don't know how many essays there were, but there were a lot. And the, out of all the essays, there were like maybe two or three that were kind of negative or looked at Star Wars askew. The rest of them were all like, we love Boba Fett, you know, that sort of thing. Lydia Millet <laughs> wrote about her inner Darth Vader. Erica Krauss wrote about seeing Star Wars, how it influenced her in terms of learning martial arts. All sorts of very interesting things. Harry Allen wrote about the hip hop crossover with Star Wars. So it was an interesting book. And uh, yeah, it just didn't get the right kind of push. Although a couple of years ago, Cass Sunstein, the uh, American jurist and essayist and wrote a Star Wars themed book about life lessons from Star Wars or something in which he cited a galaxy not so far away several times. So it didn't get read by a whole lot of people, but it got read by the right people, I guess you could say. But, you know, when that book came out, I was having a discussion with my dad and he said, well, when are you going to do your own book? And I rolled my eyes and I'm still rolling my eyes, but uh, it's not, you know, it's not, 
it's not just a, it's not a question of, it just happens like that. Once, you know, I started working with one agent and then with a second agent and, um, it's a lot of work and it gets, it gets it, to a certain extent, it gets worse all the time. Although now for myself, because Made Men was well-received and sold well, it, it's gotten better. But the whole thing about books is that no one, you know, it's like Chris McQuarrie when he said, nobody wants to make your movie. You know, nobody wants to publish your book. There's a lot of work that goes into creating an idea. You know, in 2015, my agent and I had been talking to a publisher and there was this notion of doing a history of the transformation of Times Square. And for some reason, this was the, the idea was to do something that would be potentially like uh, Devil in the White City. And I worked on a proposal for that for quite some time. And I came up with a proposal that spanned that went from 1975 or so to 1997, when The Lion King opened on Broadway and, and you know, the transformation and Disneyfication of Times Square was, you know, at a kind of a definitive peak. And we did this proposal and it was a lot of work and, and it was turned down by the person who sort of semi-commissioned it because it was too grim. And this was a crime imprint that I was, I was pitching it to. So that was weird. And then, you know, we we had all sorts of discussions with other publishers and somebody said, well, you know, another person said, well, there's not enough hookers getting killed in the book. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Get a time machine and go kill some hookers so I can sell my book? I don't know. Then there was the whole business about how how Times Square's, a lot of the shutdown of Times Square uh, had a profound impact on the trans community. And that was an interesting idea. But there was also this idea that as a cis white male, maybe I wasn't the person to tell the story of how the transformation of Times Square affected the trans community. So there's all sorts of things that are open to question. There's all sorts of reasons not to publish a book. One reason that Made Men didn't get picked up in 2016 or so, but there was another making of book. You know, I had, I had, no, I had done Made Men. I had done a proposal for Made Men. And again, this was something you do for no money. In 2014, it, it made the rounds of publishers and everybody said, oh, this book's going to be great. We wish Glenn the best of luck. We're not going to do it. Because that year there had been another making of book that was, yeah, that in winter of 2014, early winter of 2014, another making of book that was very highly anticipated and very largely bruited came out and was a complete sales flop. So at that point, making of books were just taboo. Four years after the fact, my uh, publisher, my, my, my agent said, you know, I'm working with an editor now who's more open to this sort of thing. Why don't you dust off the uh, proposal for the Goodfellas book, which at the time was called uh, Everything Was for the Taking, a line of dialogue from the film and not deemed eventually the most catchy title for the marketing department. Why don't you dust that off and then uh, see if we can get this editor interested? So I dusted it off and we did get the editor interested briefly. And eventually he just felt that my approach was going to be too analytical and not narrative enough. He was very concerned about the oral history that had been published in, in uh, GQ magazine recently. Like, how was that going to be different from GQ? My answer was sort of like, well, you know, the GQ oral history is very good. And I did end up using it as a source for some stuff in, in the book. But, you know, like so many oral histories, it has it has a tendency to go in the direction of, of the uh, SNL sketch that Chris Farley used to do, the Chris Farley show, where, you know, a real life celebrity would 
show up and Chris Farley would say, and even one at one point, Martin Scorsese himself, remember that scene in Goodfellas where such and such happened? And Scorsese would go, yes. And go, that was great. You know, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot of that. So my feeling was, well, you know, you have a critical voice, you have a critical analysis and I will, you know, and, and I was intending to get stuff, actual narrative material that wasn't in the GQ oral history. And I, I do believe I did certainly relative to Barbara Defina's story. So that was my that was my response, but this was unsatisfactory to that editor. So that editor, who we had pinned our hopes on, turned it down. So that made me. But then we thought, well, we've got this pitch now. It's, you know, dusted off. Let's show it around and see who might be interested. And that's how we found Hanover Square Press and their editor, Peter Joseph, who really, really let me write the book that I wanted to write. And the thing is, you know, I'm I'm an older man now. I, I do write freelance for the New York Times and for RogerEbert.com. There's a feeling, you know, in the zeitgeist in America that white male critics of a certain age are uh, reaching a point of obsolescence. So being able to write books is having that in your wheelhouse, so to speak, is a uh, is very welcome, you know, to, as, is, as is teaching. You know, I want to hang on to writing reviews on a regular basis for, for as long as I'm capable of doing it without embarrassing myself too much. But the times are changing. I don't feel at the moment I have a really valid retirement plan. So the, the thing about having done uh, Made Men and having it done well is that I'm now working on a second book for the same publisher. Can you tell us anything about it? Yeah, I think I can. Uh, it's called, well, you know, it'll pro the title will probably change. So I won't say what the title is right now. But it's a book about the film Sleepless in Seattle and a book about Nora Ephron, the film's director and her uh, story in Hollywood relative to her larger life story. Although it's not a biography of, of Nora Ephron as such, which I sometimes have to keep reminding myself of when I'm doing interviews and taking notes. The reason, there are several reasons I wanted to do the book. Obviously the most practical reason relative to the publisher's wishes is that 2023, when we hope to publish, will be the 30th anniversary of Sleepless in Seattle. We published that's a that's a long time. I didn't realize it was it, it been around since. It is. It is. A, it is a long time. As you know, and and we keyed the publication of Made Men, the story of Goodfellas, to the 30th anniversary of Goodfellas. It right. turned out to be a good idea. But I was also there is. I also like the idea because it's sort of considered relative to my own work. It could be conceived as counterintuitive, you know, because I've written a book about Goodfellas. I've also written a book about Robert De Niro. So every now and then, if somebody wants to be snippy with me on Twitter, they'll say that I'm a Scorsese De Niro fanboy. You know, I think this will show another facet of my critical thinking to a certain extent. But it's also not entirely unrelated to Goodfellas because Nora Ephron, the director of uh, Sleepless in Seattle and also contributor to the script, was married to Nick Pileggi, the author of Wise mm -hmm. Guy, the film upon which Goodfellas was based. And was also, she wrote two scripts that are directly influenced by her personal interactions with Henry Hill and other right. mob figures, those being Cookie, directed by Susan Seidelman and starring Peter Falk as a mob who complains that he won't be able to good good eggplant if he goes to prison. And then My Blue Heaven, directed by Herbert Ross, in which Steve Martin plays a gangster in the Witness Protection Program, who at one point complains while living in California that he can't find arugula in the local supermarket. So uh, there's a lot of, that's the two iterations. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Of the of the joke that would, you know, wind up being one of the penultimate lines of narration in Goodfellas. The other night I ordered spaghetti with marinara sauce and I got egg noodles with ketchup. <laughs> so, you know, there's that. Obviously, the, the Sleepless in Seattle is not cookie or my blue heaven, but one source that I've been working with has stated that one reason Nora Ephron was so keen on becoming a director was because she felt that Herbert Ross, the director of My Blue Heaven, had made such a hash of her material that she might as well get in and start doing her own material. Although interestingly enough, not a lot of the films that she did direct originated as her own projects. And there were only a couple of those that, that, that did. So we'll be looking at, you know, there's also the fact that she was born in New York. Her parents moved to Beverly Hills when she was five and became very successful screenwriters. She couldn't wait to get out of Beverly Hills. She wanted to go to New York and be Dorothy Parker. That's putting it simplistically, but she did go to New York. She developed an exceptionally singular voice as an essayist and journalist, and then went back to Hollywood to make mm. these movies, some of which were substantial blockbuster hits. So how, how does one do that? How does one wrap one's head around that, making the, those steps so and and sleepless in seattle was you know her second film as a director and a humongoid hit so you know there's that too there's also sleepless in seattle's lineage relative to the rest of american romantic film or romantic comedy the fact that it is so much tied in with an affair to remember and the, right. the, the original version of love affair from 1939 with irene dunn and charles boyer you know it's also got other tendrils stretching back to the american romantic comedy bill pullman's character is very much in uh, sort of a more modern uh, updated mode of the ralph bellamy character in uh, the awful truth or his girl friday so it's connections to american romantic comedy and the way it deviates from American romantic comedy in certain crucial respects are all very uh, interesting to me. How do you sort of decide on, because you, you have to devote a significant part of your life to one film if you're going to do a making of book like Maid's Men and, a, and Sleepers in Seattle. How, how do, you, do you, does the film find you or do you consciously go through a list of films you want to do or is it just a, a mixture of that and commercial, you know, what the publisher wants? The first film book I wanted to do, and this was something I worked on with the, with the agent I had before, the one I have today, but we wanted to, you know, and it was definitely the suggestion of the agent was a Scarface book. 
a Brian De Palma Scarface. We tried several configurations for a proposal for that, and it didn't sell for reasons that uh, I'm not quite sure, but uh, that probably would have been a nightmare if it had sold, because I think that I admire Brian De Palma as a director very much, but I feel like he would have been a difficult person to deal with relative to a project like this. I interviewed him very early on in my own journalistic career, and it was for a, a film that he was showing at Venice. It was one of the, I can't remember the name of the film, with Numiura Pass. Oh, Passion. Yeah. And I said, oh, is it is it great for you to, to release this movie in, in Venice, the home of the giallo? You know, Dario Argento and the giallo and everything. And he said, oh, I've, I've never seen a giallo. I don't know what they are. I was kind of, I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure you've, you're aware of what they are. At the very least, it just felt like he was, there was a sort of moment of, of sort of challenge of sort of, are you going to call me on this? Or are you, yeah, you he doesn't like being, I think he doesn't like being led, you know, is one, is one interesting quirk. But yeah, so, but you know, so, so the idea of doing a making of book has always kind of within the, the, the scope of what kind of film books are actually marketable today. And making right. of books, despite that one hiccup in 2004, actually are becoming increasingly marketable it seems you know glenn frankel's book on uh, midnight cowboy uh, is being very well received you know there's sam wasson's book on on chinatown and polanski and all that so i mean we're in a uh, we're in a good situation we're, we're in a good position market with with respect to the market to to do making of books so you know sleepless in seattle came up the idea came about when I was discussing it with my editor at the at Hanover Square Press. Having done this book with me, they wanted to do another book with me. It was decided we probably shouldn't pivot away from film at the immediately. Not that I, you know, it's not like I'm super eager to pivot away from film, but there's other things I'd like to write about. I wrote a novel while in quarantine that I'm actually also trying to sell, which would be nice if it sold. So, you know, we just sort of started, you know bouncing ideas back and forth. And once Sleepless in Seattle came up, I thought, well, of course, not so much, you know, not so much of course, but you know, this is valid, this will work. But also, you know, my approach, you know, it's a film I, I like, obviously, and it's a film I admire. It's not necessarily a film that I have the same relation to as Goodfellas, as outlined in the book Made Men, I met Scorsese as a journalist while he was editing Goodfellas. And uh, I had been, I had been in my 20s, a Scorsese fanboy. That's a different kind of relationship. But my critical relation, you know, I, I feel very comfortable with the fact of watching Sleepless in Seattle a bunch of times over the next year. Yeah, I think it's good for everyone critically to sort of approach different different genres. One thing I noticed when I was reading Made Men is that it's such a it's such a fun book the way you put so much into it. There's the music, there's the food, you even have a recipe in there. And I saw on your Twitter feed earlier you were sort of posted a shot of the recipe. So have you you you've been you've also made the, this food? Uh, I I really like that sort of sense of interaction with the movie that you're really going you're watching it and you're talking to people who are making it, but you're also sort of uh, there's a real sense of interaction with the with the film uh was that a way of important for you to sort of make the book different give it give it a uh, buzz yeah i mean it was one of those things where i was going to use my own relationship to the to the movie throughout it had been decided that my meeting with scorsese in 1989 would open the book so it would have a kind of a personal perspective but then again you know it's one of those things where i guess people have told me this and and i'm aware of it to a certain extent but one of the things that i like to do as a critic is make connections in my mind i, I do have a lot of 
places where my mind and my knowledge can go, where I can draw connections to things. So, you know, when I talk about the music and the film, I'm not just going to talk about X, Y, and, you know, this song is here, this song is there. I'm going to talk about what doo-wop music actually is and what doo-wop music actually means and what's the meaning of doo-wop music to someone like Scorsese. It's a Black form that was, you know, embraced by whites and adopted by whites and to a certain extent corrupted by whites in the same way that late you know, R&B turned into rock and roll and, and was kind of pasteurized, to say the least, by Pat Boone. And so I'm going to talk about that because it does have meaning in terms of how the f music is used in the film. Even Scorsese talks about at the end of the film when things are going bad for the uh, Goodfellas that the uh, doo-wop that's used in those scenes is entering its decadent phase. How do you know what he means by that? I mean, you can just accept it at face value, but it's fun for me to kind of walk the reader through just what he means by that. So, you know, that's going to happen. I'm going to talk about Layla. I'm not going to talk about just Layla being, you know, this signpost of dad rock. I'm going to talk about Jim Gordon, the guy who composed the piano coda and his own schizophrenia and the fact that he's in jail for murdering his mother. These are things that are, to me, they don't have a direct relation to the film, but these circumstances have a resonance that is noteworthy. And because that's also where my mind goes. I've always been curious. You know, a lot of people will say, well, don't use words of several syllables. Don't don't make your reader look up words. Don't do that. That's just, you know, pretentious and affected. But I was never one of those readers. I would read things and I'd look up the words. And when I was reading Cream Magazine in the 70s, if they mentioned Gavin Breyer's The Sinking of the Titanic in a sarcastic endnote to a letter to the editor, I'd find out what Sinking of the Titanic was. That was just what I did. I want to bring that to what I write. And Goodfellas has a lot of references and a lot of allusions and things in there that are, once you dig deeper, are very interesting to get into. Not just Sunshine of Your Love being dismissed by Jerry Wexler as psychedelic hogwash, but also things in the real life of Henry Hill and his relation to Edward McDonald, his uh, relation to the FBI agents who were um, investigating other cases that he was giving information about. All that stuff to me is like, okay, this is fascinating. And it has something to do with the film. So let's, why not go there? It's not, to me, it's not filler. It's not trivia. It's, it's real stuff. Do you ever get like one of those uh, investigators for a serial killer who has the the wall with red thread connecting everything from here? Is that, uh, is if you got one of those spider maps in your mind? I, I watched the film an awful lot and I made a lot of notes. And the interesting thing to me was, especially during the writing of the fourth chapter, which is a scene by scene breakdown of the movie, kind of alternating my own observations of what's going on on screen with the material I collected in interviews and talking about the bamboo lounge and the actual shooting location for the interior being the Hawaii Kai restaurant and whether or not the Hawaii Kai was, uh, you know, everybody's memory of this varies. Some people remember, oh my God, yes, there were, there were fleas. Other people are like, no, there weren't fleas. I would have gotten bitten. But, you know, I, I have to include both. So alternating that with the description of how the Steadicam shot was achieved, all those things. Yeah, obviously a lot of it is in the notes, but then you find it in the writing. You'll find as you're writing something down, an ideal place to say, oh, okay. And here's where I can talk about the fleas or something. When you met Scorsese, you had no sort of inkling that you were going to write this book. or 1989? No way. <laughs> no, no. 
I mean, the film hadn't even come out at that point, obviously, because he was just making it. But um, it was very convenient when I started doing the when I started doing the book, for sure. But I'm sorry, I cut off your question. It sounds like I mean, you've mentioned earlier that you were you're a big fanboy <laughs> to use the, to use it a great a big admirer of Scorsese. Let's we need we actually need a sort of a noun for people who like Scorsese. Uh, a sort of we're not going to get one today, I guess. But what drew you to Scorsese as a filmmaker, and is he is he your sort of is he up there at the top of your pantheon oh sure i mean he's not the only filmmaker i i revere uh, i mean you know where do you want me to start mizuguchi wells claire denis there's plenty in my pantheon he's definitely in them and he certainly was influential sure. early on you know a lot of, a lot of the stuff that you get as a critic it's all it's all contingent on what you're able to see and as a teenager and as a kid growing up i didn't get into new york i only started going into new york when i was like 12 or 13 and at that point I was mainly interested in Benwell, so I saw things like The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. So Benwell, you know, he's a big one. Scorsese's films played close to where I lived. And also, I'm partially Italian-American. I was raised in Fort Lee, New Jersey. So when you're 13 or 14, you see something like Mean Streets and the opening with Be My Baby and the home movies, and you're like, oh, okay, wait, I know these people. These are, these are relatives of mine. So that hooked you in for sure. You know, I don't have relatives in the mafia that I know of. There are, you know, at certain funerals <laughs> years ago, I've been told, oh yeah, that one. They don't, they're not people I was ever very close with. I don't consider it romantic to have relatives who are criminals, but you know, I mean, you know, I've, I've been a criminal. It's not romantic. But um, Wait, 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 back, back up. <laughs> I've, I've done, I've, I've done criminal things. Uh, okay. Not in an organized crime sense, but, you know. In a disorganized crime dis sense. Yeah, very disorganized. I have a disorderly conduct in my jacket. So, you know, so, but I, yes, I understood that world. When I saw Raging Bull with my mother, she understood that world very, very closely. That helps, I think, talking about seeing yourself on the screen. I never saw myself on the screen in a Scorsese film, for sure. I, I'd hope not. But I saw people that I, I that I perceived as, as real people or more real than the people I'd usually been seeing in films. But also, I like the dynamism of the filmmaking. I like the music. The performances were extremely vivid, obviously. So, I mean, there's a lot in, you know, Scorsese is not to everyone's taste, but you can't say that he does not make distinctive films and that they ha they don't have a very particular point of view. And that point of view is different, was different than a lot of the stuff that you'd see in Hollywood's films. You know, uh, when you think about the people that he came up with in Hollywood during the Easy Rider's Raging Bull, what is called the Easy Rider's Raging Bull's era, he has, in a sense, the most particular style. Spielberg has a particular style that is harder to pin down in Scorsese's. But with Scorsese, you have certain aspects of like the use of slow motion in a shot and things like that. Spielberg has a lot of stuff that's a signal idea of his style, but uh, the most prominent thing is something that's kind of hard to pin down, but that Hitchcock really pinned down when he talked about Spielberg getting rid of the proscenium. But Coppola, you, Coppola, you have to work pretty hard to nail down his style, and it does change. There are shifts in it from film to film. Bogdanovich, very classical style. Scorsese is someone who you can kind of, you know, who like Hitchcock, who like Wells, you can kind of look at his films and say, oh, okay, Scorsese. And even people who imitate Scorsese don't do it well enough to the extent that you'd mistake them 
for a Scorsese film. So that's certainly that's certainly significant, I'd say. Yeah, I was just thinking about people who imitate Scorsese. I suppose um can what was the name of the film? With Bradley Cooper and Christian Bale. Disaster. American Jungle, American Folly, Amer- American Hustle. Hustle, yes. Which I mean, to tell you the truth, that's one of my bet noirs is the use of American in the title. It just sort of like seems such a lazy there have been good movies with American in the title. But it's already you're already five points down in my on my personal scorecard. How did you find? You just said you you wrote a, a novel during your uh, during the lockdown. Um, how did you find that process? I mean, obviously extremely different from writing a book about film, but you know it's also still sitting there, you know, banging out the words. Uh, yeah, it was weird. Uh, well, I mean, I've this is the third novel I've written. And hopefully this one will get published. Uh, the first novel I wrote was was rejected in a very unusual way by most of the people who rejected it. It just sort of, it was one of those things that just sort of, there was a precipitating incident in my actual life during the, 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 uh, the COVID semi-quarantine that kind of kicked off this. Yeah. So the first novel I wrote was was rejected in a very kind way by many people who very li- liked it very much. It was a thriller. They liked it very much and they all said that they'd be killed if they published it, which is a weird way of being rejected. And things have only gotten worse for that novel. So it may be a long way from seeing that one get published. And the second one, different reaction, um, certain things. But this one just sort of, I think as Paul Schrader put it about his uh, writing Taxi Driver, he said the the movie sprung out of my mind like an animal. And that was kind of what happened with this novel, which is a relatively short novel about the length of The Great Gatsby. It's about 50,000 words. There was a precipitating incident and all of a sudden I thought aha and it was one of those things I don't want to get into it too specifically because I feel like there's an I feel like it could be published and it could be commercial there were points during which I was writing it that I thought oh my god which is actually always a really good feeling if you're afraid of what you're writing you may be on to something or you may be on to being unpublishable but it was one of those things where you know obviously the whole thing didn't download into my brain but I saw the beginning and I saw the ending and as I began writing it, uh, I saw the ways that I could make the structural connections that would make it an actual story. The story is interesting because it's kind of the same structure as um, Clockwork Orange, specifically Kubrick's adaptation of Clockwork Orange, that there's specific incidents that happen to Alex among specific people. Then he's put in prison and given the Ludovico treatment. And then the cycle starts again, and he has specific incidents with the same specific people in this different context. And that's essentially the structure of the novel relative to the protagonist's childhood and, and adulthood. So that was fun. It was also daunting and, and weird and scary. And eventually people, I'm still waiting for my agent to read it. He's a very busy man, but I'm hoping once he does, um, we'll get on the uh, track to showing it to some editors and including obviously my, my current editor who has right of first refusal. There's some things you sort of like plot out and then you kind of labor at them and you solve problems before doing the actual writing and in this case it was just one of those things where it was like i just knew what it was going to be and i knew it was going to be relatively short within the within that neighborhood of writing i won't say it was easy but it was something that you know i was able to do in a relatively fast amount of time and I was able to find the proper style relatively quickly too. I wish all projects were like that. Having the lockdown was that a, a sort of advantage as well, in the sense that there were, there weren't the number of well, there weren't any screenings and yeah, no, I was sitting around the house a lot. 
Still yeah. sitting around yeah. the house a lot. Best ally of the writer sitting around the house a lot with nothing else That's to do. That's for sure. So what I wanted to ask you as well, uh, Glenn, is do you have a recommendation for a film book that other people who may not have encountered and influenced you or or, ha- or or is just important to you? I think anything by Robin Wood, but one f- book that I really felt strongly about during the writing of Made Men was Robin Wood's book about Howard Hawks, kind of a landmark study of Hawks. And I thought, well, you know, if I can make my book as good as this or somewhere near as good as this I'll be happy so that was a book I thought a lot about even though the structure and the um, approach Robin Wood's Hawks book is very different from from my book and another book that's about a single film and also has a completely different approach from my book is Raymond Durgnat's A Long Hard Look at Psycho so the two British film critics who I admire very much yeah and everybody should read Molly Haskell. But yeah, in terms of being related and not related to my own work, that the, the Wood and Dirknat are, are very important. It's important as well to have stuff that has a little distance to you because, or to at least I find in my own writing, I love people who write stuff that I think, oh, I love that, I'm never going to approach. Not in terms of quality, but I'm just not writing that kind of stuff. But I love to see someone else do it. Yeah, these are the things that inspire me. So, what about like your? You said you started at the very beginning. You said you you started getting into movies with like horror, science fiction. Do you ever like to to sort of go back and have a look at that for a book? No, not at the moment. I think you know. I look at the work of my friend uh, who I've never met, Tim Lucas, and I think that guy's got it all sewn up. And Stephen Thrower, another uh, British writer, his his work on Jess Franco and uh, Lucio Fulci and other is 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 I think fantastic and and interesting. And it certainly influenced me to a certain extent because it's shown me new ways of thinking about cinema that most critics condemn as trash that's important to me i think so yeah but i don't i don't necessarily know that i would certainly it'd be interesting to write about george romero it'd be more interesting to write about him while he was still alive unfortunately i'm sorry he passed but yeah how do you feel about the the modern sort of uh horror not very good (laughs) you know i it's it's one of those things where i don't want to seem like a nostalgist but I, i i you know i think i can't relate to things like the saw movies i think they're just completely i think they're just completely kind of self-conscious trash exercises and scab p- picking. I actually like Eli Roth's movies better than, than than those. I have an old friend who who I grew up with, who I watched all these movies with, Night of the Living Dead and so on and so forth. And for a long time, he worked at a video store. You know, people would check out these latter-day horror movies and they'd ask him what he thinks. And he's like, eh. he's like what is the matter with you? You don't like horror movies? He's like, I do like horror movies. Uh, I just don't like the way they make them now. Actually, there are some that are good. There are The Deeper You Dig, I think is an excellent right. contemporary horror movie made by the Adams family, not the Charles Adams family, but another family of regional filmmakers named Adams without the second D. That's an excellent contemporary horror movie. And I, I just got a DVD of A Ghost Walks. And I hear that's very good. And I'm going to check that out. I'm not too crazy about the more self-conscious stuff, the the fake giallo, but I do like, um, I do very much like, uh, what's his name? Peter, guy who did Fabric. I think Fabric is really good. And, I, you know, I like Ari Aster with some reservations. Peter Strickland, excuse me. Peter Strickland. Uh, that, that guy's fabulous. I don't know what's, you know, what Ben Wheatley is up to now, but he did some effective work. But Strickland is... 
coming out. Strickland, yeah, Strickland is great. Ari Aster is really talented, but a lot of the stuff is just more self-consciousness than I can stand. I really, um, I did not care for that farm film report thing with Spielberg's son. I don't know if I've seen that one. No, it was out in the States a bit. Honeydew. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't like that at all. So I'll say it's mixed, but it's not, it's not a complete wash, but the mainstream of what's going on in contemporary horror is not something I'm that enthusiastic about. Certain genres always strike me that they're they're not really the genres they they tend to be, or at least many of the more mainstream movies don't tend to inhabit those genres. So it's like a lot of comedies strike me as action movies with jokes, and a lot of action movies strike me with comedies with action sequences. And sometimes the horror movies that you mentioned, like Saw, they feel more like comedies just with gross-out moments than yeah, yeah. than actual horror movies. And I, yeah, it's it's a. It, I think horror's in a very strange place at the moment. The thing about the Saw movies is that they don't really take the central... They set up this 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 um, gambit that's just incredibly sadistic, and they act as if they're taking the existential conundrums of that gambit seriously, but they're really not. Oh, could you saw off your own hand? It's like, yeah, you might pass out of... Sh- you might just pass out from shock before you've actually got the saw halfway across some area of your body you know what about that it's, i mean I, it sounds idiotic to like a fault these pictures on a lack of realism but it i mean it's 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 emblematic of the extent to which they're actually taking what they're selling seriously which is not very they had this nifty disgusting nasty anti-human idea and we're gonna run with that yeah i mean does it help having body horror if you don't have a realistic concept of what the body is that's 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 another way of, of looking at it for sure well listen uh glenn thanks very much for uh giving us your time and every, i encourage everyone to read made men the story of goodfellas which is uh which is doing very well but uh if you haven't had an opportunity to read it uh get yourself a copy yeah it could always do it could always do better <laughs> it can always do better absolutely let's not get you know everything is there for the taking glenn everything is there for the taking thank, thank- you it's always a pleasure to speak with you john anytime our conversation with me and Glenn I hope you enjoyed it uh, his book just say one final time made men the story of Goodfellas so uh, it's well worth a read if you haven't already read it um, and I should be back with uh, another episode next week please like subscribe but until then take care <laughs>
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.